I think um, when you come across something which really um, embraces the past but also enhances the future, you come across some very good architecture. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, part two of design and architecture and how really setting yourself up to succeed in real estate is quite often thinking through some of the long-term appeal that real estate can offer. And of course, good architecture, brilliant homes, uh, nice apartments, well-designed real estate really is in vogue no matter if the market is going up and of course, no matter if the market is going down. So welcome back if it's your first time tuning into the Urban Property Investor. This is actually part two of a two-part conversation around designing for profit or building uh, and uh, creating properties which really do stand out from the crowd. So if you didn't listen to part one of this architecture conversation, you need to go back one episode and start from there. Of course, I always advise people to play the urban property investor in double speed. Get your life back um, so that you can perhaps listen to some other information on real estate, other points of view, or even, uh, if you like, binge some of my content. I always say my job is simply to brief you. You're the property investor. At the end of the day, debt is a choice. If people want to take on debt, it really is their decision. The real estate marketplace uh, can provide an outcome for people, but that outcome is ultimately tiered quite often over the long term. There are certain places, certain styles of property uh, that outperform others. And obviously, real estate is a vehicle which can create financial solutions for people, but it does come with high entry costs. You'd have to come up with things like stamp duty and high exit costs. You need to pay someone to market and sell your property. And of course, that ain't cheap. So along the way, we need to make some really good decisions. And as uh, my business partner, Jason Witten, always uh, harps on about, um, he's got a bit of a slogan. If he had a t-shirt, it would be the t-shirt of buy well, never sell. And of course, uh, certainly over the years, I've been able to buy really good properties and I've bought some dud properties. And I tell you what, the buy well, never sell saying is very much linked to choosing the right property to begin with. If it's that good, why would you ever want to sell it? And of course, the stock which gets traded the most is usually the very uh, stock which you know people don't want to hold on to over the long term. Stock which can quite often create unnecessary investor mortgage stress. It can be in the wrong location or the design and attributes of the asset can be a little bit flawed to begin with. Remember, as per last podcast that I 
uh, did on architecture. There are different spaces inside of our communities. There are different buildings. We're in a two-tiered market. And what that really is, is we need to look for what I refer to as the flight to quality marketplace. Uh, The idea of build to perform or buy to perform is just about investing in shortages. It's as simple as that. Uh, If you were to ask me what my slogan was, rather than buy well, never sell, it would be buy to perform. In other words, what are the shortages that we are seeing inside society? Well, we're seeing lifestyle shortages. So buying in a lifestyle area is uh, a shortage. And when something is scarce, it becomes more valuable. Uh, we're also seeing affordability shortages, right? Like the, the reality is real estate is becoming more and more expensive. It's getting harder and harder to find affordable assets, particularly in these kind of highly prized lifestyle communities. Then we've got high quality design. That is scarce as well. And really, I think you can approach this two ways as a property investor. You can find something um, which is, uh, you know, fairly just reasonable when it comes to its look and appeal, but make sure it's in the right location. Or if you're ultimately having to be pressured and pushed further and further afield, and because of your price guide and what you can ultimately spend as a property investor, uh, you need to then buy something which is really good quality. It's designed well because the trade-off is you don't have the protection of location. So quite often you need the protection of high quality uh, stock, which is designed to perform, right? And so where this goes wrong for a lot of people is they end up buying real estate, which um, you know is full of capital costs. It's it's something that they constantly need to prop up. And when we look at the statistics around investor stress, like investors get stressed today, around sort of twenty five percent of investors are not having a really good experience with real estate. So uh, they're unable to keep up with the cost of owning their real estate. So think of it that way, right? Like I know uh, that's not a great set of clickbait um, or a massive headline, but it's so true. A lot of stock out in the marketplace is dysfunctional. It should be demolished. In fact, you are seeing a lot of homes get demolished um, when it comes to our uh, streetscapes and our suburbs. Um, You're just seeing so many homes reach the end or expiry date. And of course, that's the other big problem with real estate. Not only do you have uh, large costs to get involved in real estate, large costs if you need to exit real estate. In other words, if you make the wrong decision, you don't buy well, you're going to have to sell. So you're paying tax on the way in with stamp duty. You may be paying some capital gains tax. You may be uh, securing a capital loss. Uh, you may have to tip in to, to um, reach that losses financial uh, you know algorithm. And then you've got to pay a realtor to market and sell the property. Um, and of course, along the way, you 
got to fund a mortgage and and real estate can go wrong. And for property investors, some recent statistics I noted was around 25% of real estate investors are in uh, really investor stress. They're, they're not having this buy to perform uh, or demand through through the right asset um, experience. And of course, a lot of that comes down to architecture and the pedigree of what's on offer. When real estate has a very good pedigree, it performs and it's the first to rent. Uh, people line up to rent it. It's the first to resell when it's when the market, um, you know, when it's a good time to sell. Um, and it's the legacy real estate you want to hold, right? If you can buy well and fundamentally never sell. Buy uh, to perform real estate is really a demand-led marketplace, right? Everyone wants it. And so when I analyze some of the tools I look into when it comes to understanding what is demand and what uh, people love inside of demand, a lot of that comes down to design and architecture. And so if you think about reputations inside of real estate, you've got uh, really uh, architects that can have incredible reputations. Today, there are starchitects inside of the real estate economy. And starchitects, you know, design some of the greatest buildings around our cities. Now, I recently bought a property uh, from uh, a a builder and developer team. um, And the starchitect was John Wardell, right? John Wardell is an amazing architect. He run uh, just recently won uh, the and the building that I bought in actually won um, an award, an international award for best residential architecture in the world. Right, so it's incredible that I could buy that, and the cost to buy that was not much more than a very homogenous, simple. Um, I don't know, like uh, just a nothing piece of real estate. The two were side by side for about $50,000 more. I was able to secure Starchitect brand residence um, in the suburb I, I chose to buy in. And the dividend on that is is exponential. Uh, it's literally outperforming the rest of that product type in that suburb at the moment, it's getting around four times as much more growth. And, you know, John Wardell, if you like, he designed the Gucci shop inside of Pitt Street Mall, Sydney. So if you've ever been to Pitt Street Mall in Sydney, go to Gucci. I tell you what, if you want to see a really good movie, go and see the house of Gucci um, at the flicks, it's a it's a really good yarn about um, the crazy family that is Gucci. A lot of uh, interesting tales inside of that family structure. So there's a little tip for you. So the importance of long term assets is demand through really the idea of design. So the more people want something, it's designed for them to want to keep coming for it. Now, quite often as a property investor, we often think about real estate as a logical buyer. We'll 
Um, be very, very analytical about what real estate is about. But at the end of the day, real estate is shelter um, and real estate is culture. And real estate is, as I alluded to last podcast, is a storage of wealth. And so if we can understand that, if we can find real estate, which is going to increase the culture, we're going to increase the storage of wealth that uh, we have inside of real estate. So all good and well talking about the idea of flight to quality and the idea of uh, real estate and dwellings. Dwelling, We have different types of dwellings, don't we, inside of real estate with houses, units, townhouses, villas. Uh, we have different eras as to when real estate was created. We have turn-of-the-century properties all the way up to present day where we've got really some contemporary designs when it comes to property. I certainly look at certain eras in real estate and note that there were some good product on offer. And, you know, for every decade that has uh, passed, um, there is a good decade and there is a not so good decade when it comes to real estate design. And uh, I would say fundamentally, particularly in the newer construction section of the market, uh, you know, prior to sort of 2017, the 17 years before that, you know, product was dysfunctional. It wasn't architecturally designed correctly. There was a lot of imperfections inside that real estate. Today, we're actually flowing into an era of very good design real estate if you know where to look for it. And again, you know, when we look at the statistics, you know, so many people are buying real estate and, uh, you know, the production of real estate is, uh, you know, a, a financial mechanism for the Australian economy to survive that, of course, a lot of real estate is produced, which um, does not meet the design standards that really a property investor needs to go the journey. So I love looking into this stuff. I've got a real passion for it. You know, I grew up in a shabby old house and was exposed to beautiful architecture in my community, which I grew up in. Um, some Edwardian homes, some Victorian properties. Um, and of course, if anyone's listened to my overall communication and podcasts, uh, you'll know that I lived in um, Sweden for a very, very uh, uh, a significant period of my life, an early um, period of my life. And uh, it was very bleak. You know, you had these kind of uh, almost like um, Soviet era looking uh, Brezhnev buildings, which, you know, were just not the nicest place to be part of. Now, if anyone's ever traveled to Melbourne, um, you might notice Melbourne um, has some sort of housing commission towers and things like that. Um, those big sort of 1960s brown iconic, you know, eyesores. For Melbourne people, they don't really care too much about it these days. And uh, if anything, a lot of those places now are uh, help 
helping refugees come into the country. So they serve a great purpose, but they're definitely past their use-by date. But a good example of architecture which kind of boxes people in, they are architectural statements of inequality. And today you can get this sort of very extremes of hit through the history of real estate. So I think if you're going to um, keep playing this podcast, you know, you might want to take some notes on your iPhone or even, um, I don't know, get a piece of paper and a pen or whatever. And I'm going to give you some history as to Australian architecture and uh, I'll use terminologies which visually in your head may not make much sense so because this is a podcast not a webinar um, you're not visually going to be able to connect the dots right so you might want to understand this stuff in a little bit more detail when it comes to um, the idea of what architecture is and which architecture is highly profitable, right? Highly profitable. So I want to start with the housing market. And obviously, the Australian housing market dates back a long time now. You know, Australia obviously um, began in Sydney Harbour around the rocks. And a lot of early Australia was building homes around the financial hub of really um, the the community that sprung up. And one of the big challenges with Australian real estate is it's always been quite expensive because when Australia began, we, we put, um, you know, houses fairly close to the city in the inner and middle ring um, instead of sending them further and further afield and putting density close to our major cities uh, when our cities began. And so we almost have this kind of um, challenging start when it comes to prices to begin with because obviously, generally speaking, the better land is close to the CBD. The CBD itself is in the best position of the city. And of course, you know, when you go sort of anywhere from, you know, one to 20 kilometres from the CBD, you're, you're usually doing pretty well. Um, and if uh, that trading history is now quite old, you're going to see a mixture of typology, a mixture of properties. Now, you can go to suburbs in Australia and just see one type of dwelling type. Uh, what is quite healthy in Australian real estate is to go to a suburb and see multiple homes from different eras, some protected, some heritage base. And so you get this kind of really awesome uh, storage of wealth in these neighborhoods, but you also get that cultural effect that architecture can bring. So the first house type I would probably suggest you go and Google is the Bohemian house type. This um, really does date back to the turn of the last century. One of the best examples, if you like, is Google the yellow house or the yellow building in Potts Point. Absolute cracker when it comes to understanding uh, the idea of Bohemian architecture, um, which uh, is uh, uh, a great uh, building to understand the idea of um, 
of early pioneering um, architecture, right? So uh, when it comes to architecture, um, we constantly go through this period of symbols versus innovation. Symbols versus innovation. And so if you can imagine architecture, a symbol of architecture, uh, if, you, if you think about uh, a courthouse, right? A courthouse. Uh, that is a symbol. It's got pylons. It looks like, you know, the Acropolis inside of Greece. It looks uh, like, you know, uh, a symbol of power, right? So architecture is usually driven around either symbols or it can swing the polar opposite way and be driven around innovation. And so what happens is we go through periods of symbols and periods of innovation. And really the Bohemian period was a symbol period, if you like. Um, and we swing, right? And there's no right or wrong, but sometimes um, certain symbols are past their use-by date and certain innovations are too far ahead of their time. And we certainly have seen that around the real estate community. So uh, if you want to, I guess, comprehend what a symbol may be, if you Google boom-style homes, um, that period was very much a symbol of wealth. And the homes themselves could be, you know, um, you know, little Lord Fauntleroy's house. It could be a courthouse. They are a very symbol-based uh, period of architecture. And, of course, then you've got innovation. And, um, you know, Harry Seidler here in Sydney was a great architectural innovator. And, of course, he's built some buildings which today are still argued as over-innovative. Uh, um, there's, for example, circular towers that uh, people live in in apartments. Now, do people really want to live in a circular space um, one would argue potentially too innovative, right? So this is this is the the I guess differences in this in the um, volatility of architecture um, at a very very basic level. Symbols are, are well thought of. Innovation, of course, is something that comes into architecture. And if, I think um, when you come across something which really um, embraces the past but also enhances the future, you come across some very good architecture. So proven architecture in Australia is, for example, the terrace home, the Victorian terrace home. Now, these obviously um, predate even Australia. They're a copy and paste job from England. Um, in England, you know, people didn't need big backyards. It was cold. Um, and really, the terrace home was created to cluster people in villages. Um, and of course, today, some of those terrace and Victorian style homes are very, very expensive. You know, circa two, three, four, five, six million dollars. You'll find terrace style homes in our older cities. Quite often, you find them in Hobart and Melbourne and, and Sydney. And today, um, you know, 
some of these these properties, if you can get your hands on them as a property investor, you're going to do well because there's only so many of them. Um, the reality is, though, the price to buy them is expensive, right? Uh, I mentioned boom style homes. The, the boom style period was a period of um, just after World War One, where you had this, um, you know, again boom period, which uh, you know before the the meltdown of the stock market and the Great Depression, you had this period where people were spending large amounts of money on homes. And really to imagine a boom style home, you you simply think of a terrace home and then double the size of it. Um, and it's again, a very iconic piece of real estate. In Australia, we had Federation Homes, Federation 1901, homes built in that period. Again, um, the build quality very, very ornate, very, very beautiful. And of course, anyone who can get their hands on a Federation style home is sitting on a gold mine because as a property investor, you know, real estate will go up in the millions, but it generally uh, will go up um, again based on scarcity. And quite often you can see a Federation home sitting next to a very generic home uh, Sane Street, and this is where property investors, again, you've got to get really granular, um, two completely different price ranges. And quite often, you know, you just can't work off some of the data because it doesn't take into consideration some of these amazing pieces of architecture uh, around Australia. And of course, uh, the Queenslander is really the Queensland version of a Federation home rather than made out of some of the, uh, you know, double brick materials that you see in Melbourne and, uh, and uh, Sydney to insulate um, the weather. You know, in Queensland, you'll get this sort of tin and timber effect, uh, homes built high up because obviously of the subtropical conditions, rain, but you'll get this very, very beautiful architectural type of, um, of uh, you know, wooden verandas and lattice. And uh, again, this real estate in its entirety is a little bit expensive, but it is a statement piece when it comes to Australian real estate. And of course, we have uh, post-war, First World War homes. And, you know, quite often, uh, we see them round our suburbs. And these homes, if you ask me, are perfect for the wrecking ball. Uh, they are small. Um, they really are almost like a villa-looking home. Um, if you can think of a housing commission house, you'll probably imagine what um, these homes are. And again, they really were built um, for return service persons. Um, they served a purpose back in the day, um, but, you know, certainly past their use-by date. I know I would hate to live in uh, one of these sort of post-First World War homes or, or um, uh, you know, just built after that World War when, um, you know, when Australia, you know, had some challenges economically. And again, um, just, you know, stock which I would steer clear of. You know, you're talking uh, 100-year-old plumbing. You're talking, you know, electrics from another era, right? It's just 
you know, not ideal for a property investor. One of the homes which does very, very well inside of Australian economics is the uh, the California bungalow. Yes, Australia um, began to design homes based out of uh, California, based out of America, and one of those homes was uh, quintessentially called the bungalow or the Californian bungalow. And again, this home is very, very sturdy. It's something if you can get your hands on and you can afford to to buy it, um, very much something which uh, would be an ideal property uh, to renovate, that is for sure. Now, uh, again, when we think about some of these older homes, some of them are heritage listed, right? So you've got... Uh, for example, certain caveats that, um, you know, properties post-war, over 100 years old, uh, they can't be knocked down. And of course, um, sometimes that's a gift to property investors, but sometimes it's also a curse because of the maintenance cost and the cost to, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, improve the asset. Probably one of the, the most interesting pieces of architecture and this is something you're more than welcome to google if you're not acquainted with it is mid-century modern homes this was really homes designed around the 1950 era and again these homes are highly sought after they're very very scarce um one just sold near me for seven million dollars i went and had a look at it it was uh, not a modern home by any standards. It's literally a home where you are living in the 1950s. Um, and there is really uh, a group of, you know, buyers out, out there that kind of want to live, um, you know, with this old classic furniture, um, old classic retro kind of look and feel. And they'll pay big mark bucks for a mid-century. So if you can get yourself a mid-century and you find uh, a little bargain and perhaps uh, even the real estate agent doesn't really recognize it's a mid-century modern, it can be worth an absolute fortune. So uh, tell you what, keep an eye out for the uh, mid-century. Now remember, architecture is driven... Uh, a lot by the idea of symbols, so a symbolic piece of uh, real estate and innovation. These are that's the pendulum, if you like. And so, some real estate from bygone areas uh, certainly offers really no symbol and neither innovation. And of course, quite often property investors are exposed to this asset class. And really the reason um, the reason being is if you go back and you look at mid-century homes, post-war homes, uh, Californian bungalows, um, classic Queenslanders, Federation-style homes, terrace homes, boom-style homes, they're all usually over $2 million today. So uh, when we move forward and we want to spend, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred, a million dollars, um, you know, we are exposed to different eras of real estate. Um, probably the era where I see there is a lack of innovation and really no great symbol that people are going, wow, you know, I wish I could get my hands on that. 
Uh, I wish I could get my hands on a terrace home or a, or a mid-century modern is you've got, for example, the classic double or triple fronted house. Um, these are homes really built from around 1960 to 1970. Um Inside the home, you've probably got a classic three-bedroom, one-bathroom situation. Uh, you've got um, a detached garage. You've probably got the hills hoist out in the backyard. And again, um, give this a Google if you want to, um, you know, comprehend what it actually is, double or triple fronted houses. Uh, for me, like, I think they're a bit lost in translation today. I think... Um, there is no reason to not put a wrecking ball through them, if you like. And of course, then we moved into the era of the project home. The project home, of course, was the idea that financial capitalism started to leak into the real estate economy and real estate left the idea of just being about shelter and everyone owning a home and then you started to see this sort of more mass production section of the marketplace where really homes had to be built based on finance and of course we began to sprawl as a nation we began to get a lot bigger um, you know our population really went from sort of circa 10 million people and has um, risen today to, to over 25 million people. And a big part of that story, if you like, is the Project Home. And as I review Project Homes, um, certainly the early era of Project Homes, which are house and land packages, uh, date back to the 1970s. And um, you quite often will drive through suburbs, perhaps uh, a little bit further out from the middle ring, of our cities and you'll drive through them and not even realize that once they were a land subdivision. So uh, the classic project home, if you like, I think um, particularly house and land packages um, between sort of 1970 to perhaps 2010, even 2015, you started, uh, you really had a, a, a pretty, in my experience, um, you know, basic structure, a pretty basic structure, finance driven. And, uh, and if anything, um, it's, it's some of these stock which lacks innovation and also lacks symbolism that uh, can end up becoming functionally obsolete, right? There's a lot of triple-fronted houses today that people are either renovating to make them functional or detonating to remove the dysfunction, right? It's as simple as that. There's even a lot of project homes which, again, are being renovated to improve their functionality, to add a fourth, uh, sorry, fourth bedroom and second bathroom to increase the functional design of the home. So, the reality is we've got this sort of symbol classic era and then um, we're probably in a space where certain homes are needing transformation. We've got uh, a new era of modern project homes which incorporate a lot of more green technology. Uh, there's a lot more glass use, a lot more lighting than early project homes. Um, I think the project home 
genre, if you like, has come a long way when it comes to its transformation look and feel. And of course, now we're up to what are, what is known as contemporary homes, which is um, a far more sleek and slender and almost minimalistic look when it comes to designing a new home. And so when it comes to, to I think, uh, modern project and also modern contemporary homes, they are a very good era. I think they're going to perform very, very well into the future when it comes to their symbolism and also their innovation and as a really a new typology in the modern economy, I think really some of the big bucks is being spent around what this look and feel actually is. So again, probably a little bit hard to follow along on the podcast unless you do some Googling, but certainly today when it comes to what in property investors can afford, we are seeing the uh, advent, if you like, of uh, a lot of people wanting to live in townhomes. And I think townhomes are coming along. They are doing um, a great job at designing really architecturally interesting townhouses today. Some of the architects and builders and design teams around Australia, which are really providing some sensible housing solutions for uh, the middle ring of our cities. Now, obviously, Land content is a concept that many property investors love the idea of. And of course, sometimes a smaller amount of high value land content is better than a larger amount of low value land content. And so the rise of the townhouse, if you like, is something which is under well underway. And of course, you're seeing um, some great examples of what that looks like from contemporary home townhouses to even compact Queenslanders today being designed in the era of uh, federation, in the era of the Queenslander, which is very, very interesting. Remember, architecture is about shortages. It is about shortages. If you've got something that speaks this language of shortages, it's going to attract people's attention. Remember, a lot of properties designed today, you know, you wouldn't go near them. They're horrible. Um, and uh, a lot of properties out there in the marketplace, again, are just built by no-name people, uh, no-name developers, spreadsheet developers. As soon as the building's built, a company is wound down. You never hear of the design team. Um, and a lot of people, when they shop for real estate, they don't really have a clue as to what the architecture type of the asset is and or um, the design team behind it, the pedigree of the asset. And asset allocation is a massive part of creating wealth out of real estate. If you can get um, the better assets, you're going to create more and more wealth. And so architecturally, some of these homes um, that are symbols, the wealth production within them is 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 very, very strong. Um, today, as a property investor inside the housing market, I would definitely 
be looking at if I didn't want to renovate um, some of the modern contemporary home designs and even some of the modern project home designs or even some of the smaller contemporary townhouse style designs which are out in the marketplace. I own a townhouse. Um, it's it's a cracker. I've made a million dollars out of a townhouse, right? Um, it's a terrace style townhouse. It's uh, you know, it's in a row with others, but architecturally at the time when it was built, it had some architectural presence to it. It um, is very, very, very nice design, very much in the era, a townhouse designed as a terrace home from 150 years ago. So uh, modern buildings can use some of the symbolism of the past, but use modern in innovation to bring with it um, an even better outcome for the livability of, uh, of the people who reside within the home. So let's talk about apartments, right? And apartments um, quite often are a little bit misunderstood as well. Uh, by the way, the yellow building is an apartment complex. Um, I uh, spoke about it as a house, but the bohemian style uh, yellow building is an apartment complex, but you get both bohemian uh, houses and also apartment complex. So apartments date back a long time in Australia. Quite often, um, we probably don't recognize that, you know, the first apartment designs can go back to the turn of, um, you know, the century, um, you know, circa 1900, right? And so um, there are some some famous buildings which... Um, you know, were exceptional residences all the way back to, you know, the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. If you want to Google an early version of an apartment, Google the Faulkner Mansion, 250 Punt Road, Melbourne, right, or St Kilda. Um, again, when it comes to the apartment design, um, you can go all the way back to the early uh 1900s around 1930 one of the most beautiful apartment designs which i think um you know i'd love to see uh almost like a revival of this architecture style you might have to google it is commercial palazzo right it's called commercial palazzo and this uh, design is very much in style of Europe, very much like what you would see if you were walking through Milan or Paris or even parts of London. And uh, it is a beautiful design product. In fact, uh, you know, whenever I see a commercial palazzo apartment come up for sale, I'm always interested as to what the price guide is because they become very, very expensive. There's some great examples in the CBD of Sydney, great examples in the Paris end of Melbourne. Um, some of the most expensive square meter rates are paid for commercial palazzo. Why it's called commercial palazzo is it basically kind of looks like a an early office building um, but is designed in a, in a very um, luxury uh, so almost, um, uh, yeah, a, a luxury kind of design. It obviously dates back to the to the 1930s. Um, a good example, if you want to Google, 68 Elizabeth Bay Road, Elizabeth Bay, um, a beautiful designed building, the Raymond by Architecture 
um, firm Vernard. Very, very good property. Very good property. And again, a classic design uh, principle around um, uh, the idea of commercial palazzo. Um, there's some great ones in uh, Macquarie Street, Sydney. If you ever get to walk around, do yourself a little bit of a walking tour. You can go and see some really nice commercial palazzo. The other era of architecture and design, which has always done really, really well in Australian real estate, particularly with apartments, is Art Deco. Um, Art Deco design, if you like, is motifs. It's plastered, you know, ornate ceilings um, and cornices. You've got um, sort of porthole windows, lead lighting windows. You've got um, brickwork. And quite often, Art Deco apartments, there is a little bit of decent sizing inside them. And Art Deco, again, uh, quite often there is a bit of a misunderstanding as to what is Art Deco and what are some other versions of or subclasses of Art Deco, if you like. And so if you want to do some more Googling, you can Google Art Deco apartments, free classical, which is a similar era. Um, but uh, again, it's not Art Deco, but it was built in this in a similar style. Uh, and you've got another type of architecture called functionalism, which again is a very, very Art Deco-esque type of look and feel. But look, a lot of people know what Art Deco is, so I'll, uh, I'll stick to explaining what Art Deco m- may look like. But again, that sort of pre-World War II era of architecture with apartments is incredible. And again, you go into the 50s to that mid-century modernist and you can uh, start to even find mid-century apartment complexes. These are quite often referred to as uh, flats, if you like, in Australia. And uh, some of the mid-century flats are, are also real keepers when it comes to Australian real estate. Around the 1960s, things got a bit weird. And this is where, again, if we go back to the pendulum of architecture, we can flow from symbolism to innovation. And in the 60s, a lot of the architecture was around innovation. This is where today you can sort of drive past certain buildings and you're like, how the freaking hell is that thing even get created? And... um, You know, the swinging 60s, I don't know what happened back there. There was a lot of drug taking, a lot of LSD. It almost feels like a lot of the architecture around the apartment space of the 60s. Uh, Perhaps everyone was smoking weed and sucking down LSD because the innovation is uh, nothing short of hectic, right? So you've got things like those Cold War cluster buildings, which again... um, A good example of that is in Melbourne, you see the Housing Commission cluster buildings. Uh, You've got um, the red brick era, 1960s and 70s apartment complex. I mean, um, you know, having worked in property management in when I was 18 years of age, uh, I can tell you I've been in a lot of red brick era late 60s and 70s apartments and they are just shite compared to 
what is available today in the real estate marketplace. And, um, you know, uh, I all I can say is some of them are starting to be knocked down. These are not symbols of uh of wealth. Remember, when we go back to the idea of architecture, it's about shelter, it's about improving community or culture, and it is about storing wealth or maximizing wealth or uh, manifesting wealth. And again, um, certain eras just fail the manifesting test. If you go to commercial palazzo apartments, there is a massive manifestation of wealth behind them. If you go to a red brick uh, building today, odds are it probably needs a wrecking ball. In fact, um, I'd be very, very wary of the red brick walk-ups um, when it comes to real estate ownership. A lot of them are past their use-by date and you may actually become part of a strata scheme which has to make um, you know, a pretty um, uh, challenging decision to, to actually you know, sell the whole block because, um, you know, it's just not working out, right? The repairs, the maintenance, replacing balconies. Um, oh my God, if you drive around and have a look at a lot of the red brick era, it's not working out, right? It is something I think a lot of property investors need to avoid. Uh, a lot of the Spanish mansion era, which again, if you just Google some of the Spanish mansion era, 1960s, they're kind of like a red brick, but uh, they're kind of like the red brick walk-up, but they're kind of like a brown brick and they use kind of some of that um, sort of uh, Spanish um, influence of, of uh, you know, um, you know uh, like the Hacienda kind of influence, right? And so, again, very, very cookie-cutter in its design. In fact, I think most apartments from the sort of 1980s to the 2000s are, are absolute rubbish. Um, you've got, you know, the innovation, if you like, goes from red brick to a more blonde brick. Uh, and that's about it, right? That's about it. And so you start to see this sort of um, really, you know, dysfunctional product, which is built on mass. And uh, I don't think it represents scarcity whatsoever when it comes to apartment living. Obviously, uh, we then came into the era we're in, um, really the knowledge economy, the tech economy. Um, you know, one could argue the idea of transformation has been far more larger and bigger right now than ever before in human history. And a lot of that flows on to what is designed and built and what is on offer when it comes to uh, real estate. And of course, a lot of this influences apartment typology and what that can do for property investors. They can buy something far more contemporary with a lot more benefits. Um, the emphasis, if you like, went from uh, the very homogenous uh, apartment walk-up building to more things like luxury amenities, uh, lifts, uh, things like outdoor living, um, capturing views, having uh, a, a quality architect actually design the building rather than basically almost like a, a cookie-cutter product, which basically, um, if you look at those 19... 
uh, those red brick walk-ups to from the 90s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s um, don't really offer a hell of a lot, right? So early 2000, we started to see some of the early awards when it came to, um, for example, the Urban Design Institute of Australia going, well, you know, we should look into what is good real estate. And probably one of the earliest examples of that um, is situated in the Paris end of Potts Point, a building called the Pomeroy at 14 Maclay Street. This is an early typology of, uh, of contemporary modern apartment living. And uh, if we look at the design principles of, of this asset, um, it's standing the test of time. People want to live in it. People want to buy this asset. It is highly prized, right? So remember, um, and I think I talked about this in part one of architecture, it is a two-tiered market. There is no disputing that real estate and asset choice is two-tiered. There are some very good brand new construction real estate and there is some very bad brand new construction real estate. There is some very low cost new construction real estate and then there is some high quality new construction real estate. Obviously, architecturally, there are different eras that have worked and stood the test of time. There are other eras which need to be uh, basically bombed and disappear from the face of the real estate earth and compounding the issue when it comes to the psychology of a property investor is really the era from 2000 and you know year 2000 to really sort of 2016 17 was there was a lot of low quality new builds particularly in western sydney Uh, we've seen a lot of defects a lot of problems Uh, A lot of it associated with New South Wales, less so in other states, but the building standards dropped in New South Wales. And a lot of that had to do with the idea that land values became very expensive to make things mathematically work. We, uh, We allowed a lot of dysfunctional new builds to be created. And the architectural brilliance, the innovation of the buildings, if you like, was to make them lime green or uh, a burnt orange. And so uh, I don't know about you, but a lime green building doesn't sound like something which is going to be a symbol 100 years from now. It's just going to be a weird lime green building. You know a building is pretty shite when they start to paint it because they do not have any architecture significance to the asset lime green or a burnt orange. And so because the rest of Australian real estate for the most part, uh, particularly in Melbourne and Brisbane and Hobart, Canberra has, has gone up, you know, what will start to happen is the building effect, right? Um, all of a sudden, you've got to be very wary of who you're doing business with, uh, the pedigree of the real estate, because into the future, if land values continue to rise, something's got to give. And in New South Wales's history, it's been um, the build quality. And so inside of New South Wales, you have a very two-tiered marketplace. People will pay up to 
$500,000 more for a better building. Um, and it's seen as smart economics inside of uh, modern real estate to just understand who are the best in the business. They've taken the consideration of architecture into it, design, airflow, how a building breathes, the orientation. You start to see this idea of built to perform and good designs equals better capital growth. And again, um, when we look at some of the new assets coming into the marketplace, they are incredible. Uh, There are buildings which are designed to have better airflow and light, better temperature and noise, better storage, better external experience for consumers, a sense of community, um, a community that actually wants to live together and sustainability. This dominance of better buildings and better architecture is undersupplied in the marketplace. If you if you want to think through how supply works, there's a lot of inferior supply in the marketplace and there is a small amount of dominant, really good architecture that comes to marketplace. Things that embrace technology, innovation, LED lighting, um, sensor-operated lift wells, highly efficient appliances, water efficiency, rainwater collection, uh, solar panels which pay for strata costs, sustainable building materials, um, and then things which are more designed around the humanistic experience, bike storage, um, veggie gardens. um, All this stuff is really managing um, future demand. And it's fair to say that a lot of Australians' palate is more sophisticated. A lot of the kids being born today are exposed to things that many sort of 40, 50, 60-year-olds were never exposed to. And really, um, if you look at any kid out in the street today, you know, they've usually got an iPad glued to their back hip and they're on things like TikTok. They're seeing uh, sophistication through social media far, far more quickly than we ever did as children. And so it is fair to say the consumer of today and the consumer of tomorrow is going to end up with a rather sophisticated palette. And so if the architecture or the dwelling type offers very little um, architectural significance, symbolism or innovation, it's certainly uh, potentially something which is going to grow at a much slower rate than the rest of the marketplace. Remember, 51% of Australian buildings in 2050 will be built after 2022. So uh, there is more to come. And so with that, obviously, there is going to be eras of really good stock and there'll be eras of really bad stock. The important thing for a modern property investor is to make sure that you're um, also understanding that you uh, can actually go out there and buy great architecture as a property investor, particularly in the townhouse, particularly in the apartment section and in contemporary housing. Still rather affordable for what is going on and we are in a very much a changing world today. And when I look at some of the most sophisticated buildings that are being uh, created around the world, I mean, 
Some of them are absolutely urban forests. They are there are trees growing on balconies today in apartment complexes. Uh, really, the three ideas around architecture, shelter, community, and a wealth storage are being met, and uh, that's why, without question, I think um, some of the modern buildings today really do outperform some of the um, you know mid uh, well later last century buildings on offer certainly pre-1950s that stock is very very good inside Australian real estate Um, remember and I talked about this on a recent podcast I did over the Christmas break the secret language of real estate as a property investor you know, quite often you can buy something very fairly simple in a good suburb. If you're going to a less impressive suburb, it's very good to think about design and even architecture by buying in that suburb so that you are the uh, good-looking property in that neighbourhood. And I talked about this in the Secret Language real estate episode. Um, human beings are driven through design logic, right? Um Basically, there are three forms of design logic, behavioral design, reflective design, and functional design. So how that works is behavioral design is how will this property give me a better living standard, behavioral economics, what in the architecture, what in the design will transform and give me a better life, right? And so, again, um, these are the simple touches that speak the language of shoppers in real estate. Now, I'll go back to bike storage, right? It's a simple thing, but it's a behavioral thing. It absolutely allows the person who lives in that property the ability to have a bike. Riding a bike is a behavior. All of a sudden... The offering is just better. So we got to understand that behavioral design logic is just the simple context that we want things to add to our lifestyle. And if a house can bring stuff that makes us uh, feel better and have more things to do, we're going to love that. A house, an apartment, a townhouse, whatever it is, the dwelling. The dwelling um, can bring behavioral design logic. The next one is reflective design logic. And of course, reflective design logic today um, is quite often the idea that uh, people want to kind of feel good about themselves, right? They want to show off a little bit. Um, A Rolex watch is reflective design logic. No one tells, no one ever looks at their Rolex watch and tells the time. I mean, it's redundant. You just look at your iPhone. But the Rolex watch is a reflective energy which says, uh, I'm wealthy, right? And so when it comes to properties, when we look at the design characteristics, remember architecture, one of the big conversations around it is it can manifest wealth. Uh, It is a wealth manifesting tool. So if a property looks better... It's going to fundamentally attract the image of being better and, of course, will get more paid for it. And quite often in Australian real estate, there's this kind of concept, the worst house in the best street. Well, 
you know what? Most of those worst houses to rebuild them um, is is fundamentally um, just going leap. You, you know, you're basically uh, having to spend a bucket load of money to to fundamentally create the best house, right? So uh, the purpose of buying the worst house in the, in the best street is not just to sit on the piece of shit forever. At some point, you need to activate it, right? And so uh, the final behavioral design uh, logic or design logic is functional design. Um, does a property work? Does the bedrooms, are they in the right place? Is the sun coming through the windows the correct way? And certain eras of architectural uh, homes, you know, failed to get enough light into the home. Um, there wasn't enough windows created. Um, and so you often see this again in 1970s project homes. If you Google a project home from 1970s, it's got literally, uh, it's got, you know, probably about nine less windows than a modern version of it today, right? And again, um, that is not functionality. That is that is not a nice experience to live in. So uh, certainly I think the architects today have, have learned um, and a lot of what they have learned from is the last hundred years of real estate. Really, this conversation, though architecture, you know, goes back to the days of the Romans. Uh, quite often, what we are seeing with housing architecture, it's 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 some lessons learned that compound and create some beautiful results today. The reality is there is always quality for demand um, and, sorry, there is always demand for for quality and, uh, again, quality real estate is usually a, a combination of a quality location, a quality property that attracts quality tenants that pays a quality amount of rent and the asset can last a long time, which equals also quality. So, I think uh, some of the big conversations around architecture are driven from this um, section of the marketplace. Architecture can absolutely make you money. And again, I think when it comes to that conversation piece, when I track some of the results of clients that buy architecturally designed assets and for whatever reason need to sell them, they sell very, very quickly. They're very liquid. And quite often clients, you know, will buy a beautiful property that I work on for them, but then they go and get a divorce or something happens um, and they go into this investor stress space and have to sell. I don't want them to sell. But the results time in and time out are success. They're able to make money. Um, they are able to obviously recoup the high cost of real estate to enter real estate, stamp duty, and uh, the cost to sell. And even over the short term, remember long term in real estate, is plus 21 years. So it takes a while for architecture to be represented as a symbol. You know, today we look back at terrace houses as a symbol. At the time... Um, and really, you know, you could go back to the 1980s, terrace houses weren't seen as a symbol of wealth. Um, really, over the last 40 years, they've kind of turned into that. Um, today, you do have the opportunity to invest in symbols. 
Um, they're very, very few and far between, but if you can find them, you're going to make money. Um, if you've got something that is very basic and, and normal, don't underestimate the idea of adding some design flair to a very, uh, you know, homogenous home. Um, it is worthwhile because, again, architecture is highly prized in, uh, in Australia and people will pay more for it. There are even real estate firms that specialize in just helping people buy or selling people rather uh, architecturally significant houses. And some of these houses, you know, are in the tens of millions of dollars. So um, designed by, you know, incredible architectures from Harry Seidler to Peter Swan to, uh, you know, uh, a good example is the Breathe Architecture House, Double Life House in Melbourne. It's it's a cracker or uh, the Welsh House or Matthew Woodward Architecture. I mean, these these are these are big names. These are star architects, right? And again, um, you know, as a property investor spending three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars, we're not going to get the full experience here. But what we can do is make some informed decisions that. If we are buying something with a little bit of design characteristic to it, perhaps designed as an architectural statement, it's going to tick the boxes of the three big drivers of architecture, uh, shelter, community, and a wealth storage. When something looks good, it stores more wealth. Simple as that. All right, folks, uh, that's it for part two of architecture. Uh, thank God that is over. We never know when uh, we do the show, whether it's going to be a success. Um, that was two hours of architecture. I did not know that that was going to go for two hours. I really hope uh, today's episode was interesting. I don't know. I can't tell uh, because I just talk. But hey, look, if you come back next week, um, I'll make sure we, um, I don't know, drift into something even more interesting than Australian architecture. Thanks for tuning in. I will catch you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media, over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of The Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.